welcome to Minute 75 of the Great Escape Minute, the daily podcast where we dig into the Great Escape one minute at a time. I'm Rob, and joining me today is Duncan Shields of Tronologically Speaking. Welcome to the show, Duncan. Hello. Hi there. Happy to be here. This is a, this is a lot of fun. I, I yeah. enjoy it. I haven't seen this movie in a, in a long, long time, and it was a good, a good excuse to watch it again. Episode 75 begins with uh, Cavendish uh, continuing to carol. And goes all the way till we get to see Hiltz taking two more two more slots from the bed. So as we were discussing yesterday, we're, we're getting a, a, a bit of, a, of an overview of the different things that, that all of these characters are doing in order to get this escape done properly. You know, we got to see the way that, that Cavendish is leading a group of uh, Christmas carolers in the middle of the spring, early summer. You know, perfect time to be singing carols, obviously. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the the weather looks perfect for it. There's no question about that. Yes, that's right. You know, they're, they're using it to hide all the noise that's being made otherwise. So we, we got the beginning of that caroling uh, yesterday, and today we get to continue with it and hear what, what, what the Germans are must be wondering to themselves what's going on. I mean, I know that we know that caroling is universal. You know, they might not know the words properly. They might have a different they, – they translate it. Uh, did, you, did you ever see the movie well, uh, uh, The Midnight – uh, a Midnight Clear? I think so, a long time ago, yeah. Okay, it's a, it's a World War II movie from 1992. It has a great cast as uh, Gary Sinise and Ethan Hawke. And, that's right, that's uh, right. John Cusack, I think, is on there, is in that. Um, I'm trying yeah, to yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it wasn't John Cusack. It was, um, oh, what was his name? The guy who was in House. Uh, House 2, the the second story. Oh, you know, William Cass? Uh, no, Ar- oh, Ar- Arlen, Arlen, somebody. Oh. I can't remember. No, William Cat was in the first one. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was the greatest American hero. Yes, yes. They have they have a great scene where they have the you know the American soldiers listening to the German soldiers singing Christmas carols, and you know the, the yeah. tunes are the same, but the words are very different. Yeah, like Oh, Tan- oh, oh Tannenbaum out of Oh Christmas Tree. Oh Tannenbaum, Oh Tannenbaum. Could be. Of, I'm, oh, I'm not familiar tree, with the. Oh, yeah. Well, that's. <laughs> That's that's what that's one of them. That's one of them. There's uh, O Tannenbaum is the German for O Christmas tree. But I wonder if they have the twelfth day Christmas because I know I know some places have different carols, and I wonder if uh, the Germans have or they'll change the the words slightly. Like a partridge in a pear tree would be you know oof you know Luftschlagen dot in slack laughing like it wouldn't the the apologies to any German <laughs> listeners there. That's right. I've been apologizing maybe, all, maybe all, the all seasons maybe yeah. the... <laughs> with my German. <laughs> okay. I think maybe the syllables don't scan correctly if you translate it literally, so they'll have a different – it won't be a partridge in a pear tree. It'll be like a cat inside a bread box or something because that'll fit more. So they'll, I'm, I'm, I like I like hearing uh, the same tune but with different words. And, but I wonder if they have the 12 days of Christmas over there or if that's like – Absolutely about, no clue. Uh, As people British know, I'm, I'm Jewish, so I don't, I don't do any caroling. So <laughs> I'm not familiar with how they carol in German. Well, how about – yeah, how – Actually, yeah, I was wondering about that. I was wondering because I've, I've got a note here that we talked about how the 12 Days of Christmas is a song that a lot of people mess up because after the five golden rings, it gets a little murky that everybody knows five down to one. They know, uh, you know, four turtle dots, three French, uh, no, four. Oh, geez, now I don't <laughs> even know. Three French and hens, two turtle dogs, and a partridge in a pear tree. Oh, four French, four French hens. Uh, no, yeah, four French hens. So three French hens, no, two it's turtle, four turtle doves, isn't it? What's four, four turtle doves, three French hens, two. No, uh, I don't know. 
Is that a good excuse? No, I don't know. But, that's what, but then once you get, once, yeah, right? I don't. But once you get past five, you're like, how many lords are leaping? How many maids are milking? You know, uh, how many drummers drumming? So I think, uh, yeah, once you get, once you get up past five, but I was thinking to myself, oh, wait a second, you probably don't even sing. You, 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 you would be doubly unfamiliar with the, with the 12 days of, uh, of Christmas. I, I don't sing them. I don't sing them, but, but I, uh, you know, I'm familiar with it. I, I, I do watch movies. Sure. Know. Of course. I, I grew up in the States. It's not as if, uh, you know, it's things that aren't, uh, said. Okay. So it's, it's five golden rings, four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, Call and a partridge in the pear tree. Calling birds. That's right. That's yeah. Right. Now, if you want to go to the, to the rest, you have 12 drummers drumming, 11 pipers piping, 10 lords a leaping, nine ladies dancing, eight maids a milking, seven swans a swimming, six geese a laying, five golden rings, four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. That's right. So there you go. And wow, it was sung by John Denver? No. Uh, that's really uh, weird. I'm sure he it did. Says it was sung by John Denver and the, and the Muppets, but my assumption is, is they yeah. did not. Uh, they did not create it. No, they didn't write it. But that's one of the best Christmas albums out there. Is uh, John Denver and the Muppets? They did a whole Christmas album, and uh, it's got all these great, great versions on it. Where they're like, "We'll bring out the figgy pudding," and uh, Miss Piggy's like, "Piggy pudding," and it's like, "No, no, no, figgy, figgy pudding, <laughs> figgy pudding." Oh, oh, okay, figgy pudding. So it's all these different Christmas carols with John Denver and the Muppets. It was a classic around our house around Christmas time. Oh, wow. it's, a, it's a really good, really good album. Okay. Highly recommend. Well, with what I just found out is that so this is uh, the Twelve Days of Christmas is actually an English Christmas carol, which makes sense that they're singing it in yeah. the movie. It was actually published in 1780. Wow. An old and they say that that, that, that it was even thought to be originally a French song that they that they redist or whatever you want to call it. Wow, it interesting. Feels yeah, it feels French. Okay, I think it feels well because they're talking about French horns, right? <laughs> yeah. One thing that I was uh, wondering about in the this first shot of this minute here, when he's conducting, uh, it's got some Dutch angle on it. It's uh, it's rotated like uh, like just a, a few degrees. It's you know, and I, and that's something that you see in like Batman villains' lairs and stuff like that. It's something that it's called uh, it's called Dutch angle, and it's something that directors do sometimes to denote tension or to denote you know you're not in Kansas anymore. You know, it's like if somebody's taking a bunch of drugs and they kick in, then the camera will start to rotate. You know, or or something like that where you're you're showing that something's off kilter, but this is like the only shot in the film where there's Dutch angle, but it's just a shot of him conducting the choir. So I'm, I'm really curious if that's an accident or if they just, that was the only way they could fit the camera into that space or, uh, or like, why, why is it rotated like that? I, I'd like to know. Like, if Okay. Well, I have, I have a theory for that. Yeah. I do have a theory. Uh, first of all, uh, we, we know that John Sturgis was, was a, a master. So yeah. nothing, nothing in this movie is is done by accident. That would be you know, everything is done by pur- on sure. purpose. And as as we've discussed many times on the show, and I'm sure we will continue discussing it over the next few months, the main villain is. As, as I'll give uh, Jay Cluett a shout out. You know, from from when he was on the you know our first guest at the very beginning, Cavendish is basically the the foil or the uh, I, I don't, wouldn't necessarily call him the enemy here or or, yeah. or the villain. Yeah. He's the foil. You know, everything everything happens because of Cavendish. You know, he doesn't know how to properly do his survey, and they get, you know, they're, they're uh, 
20 feet short because of him. That's right. That's right. You know, he's the one He's the one who later on will fall on his package and make noise. Oh, that was him? He's the guy that falls on the package, too? That's oh, him. Oh, jeez. Yes, it is. This is Cavendish, which which made me wonder why he was the one conducting, you know. But, uh, okay. Uh, you know, but I, I never thought about the fact, you know, the, the Dutch angle aspect of it. But uh, I, I think we can give a credit for that. There you go. I think it's supposed to, I guess maybe. It shows that Sturge just wants to show that he is the villain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> with that mustache. Come on. Or trying to wipe up. Yeah, that with that mustache. says. I think, or maybe they're just trying to ramp up tension just a little bit. You know something bad's going to happen when it's got a little Dutch angle on it, so they're trying to, like, show, you know. Yeah, I can I can dig that. Right. Yeah, I mean, nothing's about to happen right now no. that's bad, but. Uh, but you're in a, we're in a but, situation. But with Cavendish, yeah. there you go. With Cavendish, you never know. Yeah, he's the he's the spatter in the And then we get uh, oh, that, that's a great catch. James Garner. <laughs> we got James Garner finding more lumber with a tunnel in the back here. And whenever I see James Garner, all I can think of is the Rockford Files. You know, to me, that's uh, that was a television show that he did for a super long time, and that's uh, it's just burned into my head. It's such a great theme song, and it was always on just after I got home from school. And, uh, that was, it was, that's all I can think of when I see James Garner because he's just, he's just himself. You know, he's one of those actors that's just, hello, I'm James, I'm James Garner in this movie. And I'm, I'm also James Garner in this movie. And you guys love watching me because I'm just so watchable. Hello, I'm James Garner. Like he's just this really easygoing guy. He kind of got this Dean Martin kind of flow to him, you know, just kind of like, Hey, what's up? You know, I'm your pal. Yeah. He's just this really, uh, Really, really good, really good actor. But I, that easy charm, all I can think of is uh, is the Rockford Files. You familiar with that? Show? Yeah, I mean, I love him in this yeah. movie. He's 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 so suave the whole way with everything that he needs to do. And you know, the fact that he 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 has his perfectly starched uh, shirt, yeah, you know, his turtleneck, white turtleneck the whole way. You know that 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 works too. <laughs> yeah, and I don't. I didn't really. It never occurred to me that there could be so much extra wood in a in a structure like they're gutting that place. They're taking the slab. And this is based on truth. Yeah. That they, they, they really, in, in the real book, they mention the fact that they would take wood from behind, you know, bookcases and stuff like that. I mean, it, 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 it's just ingenious. I never would, would think to, you know, to to try to take things from behind like that. Yeah, right. You know, you have a bookcase and, you know, no one's going to look to see what's behind the bookcase. It makes and, sense. And you can see that. Exactly. And you can see the way that they take out the boards. It fits exactly when they're going to put, you know, they're going to put it back. It's going to be completely covered. Yeah. It's just, it's just amazing. Yeah. They're taking stuff out of the, out of the attic and, and everything. Like, I don't know. Like, I guess it would cost a lot to build all of these structures out of concrete. And I guess it would also be like too hot in the summer and too cold in the winter. And I guess if you're in the middle of, if you're building a camp in the middle of the forest, it just makes sense to use the trees that are around, you know? So I guess that's, uh, I guess that all makes sense. Yeah, but that goes back, that goes back to the the, the stupidity of the whole idea of, of creating a camp that's supposed to be, you know, unbreachable and there's no way of getting out and we're going to put all of our rotten eggs in one basket. But they didn't think about these type of things. They didn't think that, okay, when they're going to dig a tunnel, they're going to need wood. Yeah. You know, they, they didn't think it through. They really did. <laughs> but watching this movie again, I love that day one, you know, hour three of being in the camp, they're like, okay, boys, you hop under those trees. I'm going to get <laughs> these these two guys are going to dress up like some uh, Russian, uh, you know, prison forced labor, uh, you know, 
lumberjacks and <laughs> they're just they've all they've got th three schemes going within a few hours of just being in the camp and uh and they get caught within a few hours within a few minutes it's within a few minutes <laughs> they get yeah they just get put in and then they're like okay and i also i didn't realize that steve mcqueen is out of the loop on the plan for like most of the film <laughs> like at least half, right. you know halfway through the film they're like well, let's bring him in on the details because he keeps going into solitary and then going right back in. No, but also because he's he's a loner. You know, he's the yeah. You know, they they he he's not someone who works well with others. You know, he doesn't play well with others, as they say. For sure, <laughs> and that's something that he's always uh, he's always been. I, you know, it's interesting because he's he's somebody that I never really uh, quote unquote got. You know, like he, he seems kind of unflappable. He did his own stunts. Uh, I think he did a lot of his own stuff. Like he was famous for being like a, you know, yes. a, a man's man and a real actor and, and that kind of like, you know, women want to get with him men want to be him, you know, it's the Steve McQueen. And I think lightning McQueen was probably from cars might've been a riff on Steve McQueen. Right. Because he was a, cause Steve McQueen. Of course. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. Like I, there's a few actors that I, I need to see a certain film before it clicks, you know, like, cause I remember I felt the same way about John Wayne. I was like, why does, what is the big deal about John Wayne? Why is everybody like, you know, why was he a legend of cinema? He, he doesn't seem impressive to me, but then I saw like the original true, true grit and he's on the back of a horse with the reins to the horse in his teeth, firing two pistols. And at that point in his life, he was uh, suffering pretty badly from lung cancer. And I was like, whoa <laughs> like okay i think i understand john wayne now that's that's intense but uh you know i've never had that that moment with steve mcqueen i get he was really famous and i get his uh his fairly young death was a was a tragedy but uh yeah i don't know he's got an intensity I don't think he's bad. So watching this movie didn't help you with that? It helped. It, to get an understanding of who he it was? It helped a little bit. Definitely because he looked like a centaur on that on that motorbike. He just looked like he he just lives there. It was part of him. It was the ease he had That's going right. over those jumps. I was like, oh, you've done this before. Like he, he really uh, – he really had that that connection with the motorcycle, so I, I I did sort of connect with it on that level for sure, and I get that he's got a certain intensity, but uh, you know I, yeah, and and a lot of people have said that that his character is very much like he was, you know his personality and his character yeah are very similar, and that's why this is considered one of his best film roles yeah like because they yeah he doesn't seem as if he's acting and I get that with it, it all comes across quite like, realistically yeah. No, I, I totally, I totally concur with that. And I, I see that in like other people like, uh, like Kirk Douglas in, uh, Ace in the Hole or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. I'm like, so you're good not example. really, you're not acting, are you? You're just like, you're just a hundred percent Kirk Douglas and you're a real force and you're, uh, just a joy to be around and you're <laughs> intimidating, but full of life and you're great on screen. You know, like some people, it doesn't come through. Like I had that experience with uh, uh, both Lauren Bacall and Ryan Gosling, where I was like, "Gosh, everybody's just oh Ryan Gosling this and Ryan Gosling that and Lauren Bacall this and Lauren Bacall that." I'm like, I'd see pictures of them, and you know, Ryan Gosling's eyes are a little close together. There is, you know, his nose is kind of a strange shape, and I'm like, "What? What? Why? What's with, what's with all the swooning?" But then I saw Drive, and I'm like. Whoa, this guy's got 
tons of intensity and on screen he's magical and with lauren bacall when you hear her voice and you see her move and you see the intelligence in her eyes on film you're like holy moly that's she's incredible <laughs> like so a lot of these people they uh they, they really come across on screen more than um if you actually want to see a, a really intense performance by, by Ryan Gosling, you should see The Believer from 2001. It was it was pretty much his first starring role, and he is okay. just amazing in that movie. He, he plays actually a Jew who becomes a neo-Nazi. Holy moly, what? Yes. Wow, I gotta check that out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it's, I, I actually saw that at a film festival and then had a Q&A session with the director right after that. That was... That was great. Yeah, no doubt. And it, it's a movie that, that still gets me every time I've seen it. It was written and directed by okay. Henry Bean. Okay, cool. Yeah, so if you ever get a chance yeah, to check, check that, that out. out. So I, as we were saying, they, they basically are, are showing a lot of the different uh, methods that uh, they're using to to gather wood to to hide the uh, the, the dirt that they're use, using to you know, that they're taking mm-hmm. out of all the tunnels and stuff like that. I mean, this, this particular minute deals a lot with that. You know, we get to see, yeah. we get to see all the, the creaking in the, in, in uh, you know, in, in the, in the rafters from them dispersing a lot of sand up there. I mean, one of the things that they, in the movie, they're trying to give us a little bit of a taste of what was done in the real escape. But in the, what they did in the real escape is they actually had, you know, according to the, to the, to the, to the book by Brickhill, they, they had a lot of trouble finding places for the dirt besides, you know, all the different things that we've seen, you know, of them, you know, having the dirt in their pants and uh, distributing it among the whole camp and stuff like that. And here we get to see them yeah. putting it in the, the ceiling. They, they apparently had a, like an entertainment shack where they would put on plays and stuff like that. And what they ended up doing was just filling bags with dirt and putting it under the stage. That was like the, okay. that was, that was the place where they had so much room to put things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so it's nice that they give us a little bit of, of of an idea as to what's being done here. I mean, I was I was recently listening to the commentary of of this movie and one of the things that was mentioned was the fact that quite often people were 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 complaining to I actually heard, you know, the the commentary by 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 Sturgis himself that was on the original Laserdisc. Oh, before, cool. Before Sturgis uh, passed away. It was a few years before he passed away or maybe it was even the same year. I don't remember. And he was saying that one of the com- biggest complaints that people had was that the movie was too long. And he took out, there was one scene where he took it out. He took out the whole scene with the, uh, the clothes where the tailor shows all the different uh, way that they're making clothes. And he yeah. took it out and he showed the film. And at one point people co- looked at it. And when, the, when the, the, the viewing was over, people came to him and says, all right, it makes a lot of sense, but how did they get all these clothes that they used to escape? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. he basically said that the way that he built this movie was it was done in, as a building with building blocks, and yeah. if you take away any of the blocks along the way, the whole thing is going to just come tumbling down because it's just not going to be as believable. So he had a lot of trouble finding places to cut, and that's one of the reasons yeah. why this is almost a three-hour movie, but it doesn't necessarily feel like a three-hour movie because. You, you need all of the little pieces. There's there's very little things that come across extraneously here that you say, all right, why are they telling us that? You know, why is this being done that yeah. way? Yeah, it's not wasted. It's a, it's, a, it's a long film, but all the pieces need to be there. I think yes. there's probably maybe a... Uh, it gets a little gratuitous with Steve McQueen riding his motorcycle around the, 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 the Alps and the wilderness at the end. There's a, a lot of shots of him doing that, or I've got to, like, 
oh, you really wanted to show this guy on a motorcycle, didn't you? I could see you could probably lose. But that was you know, also because that was because McQueen insisted that that he has a lot of that there. Oh, okay. you know, with it, because it, I mean, we all know it didn't really happen. There was no motorcycle rider. There was no hilt. But that is one of the most iconic moments in film history, not in just this movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Most people, whether they've seen this movie or not, have seen at some point Steve McQueen on a motorcycle trying to jump over the fence. Very much so, yeah. You know, for for better or for worse, it, it's such such an amazing scene that's just done so well. Oh, it sure is. It sure is. It, it might be motorcycle porn, but it's still you know. <laughs> it just yeah, just in terms of like a scene that doesn't necessarily further the plot or could be on the cutting room floor. Like I totally agree with the rest of um the rest of the scenes that he's saying, like, you know, you take one out, you're like, well, now this other part doesn't make any sense anymore. Or now there's a lingering question or something like that. So it's still amazing what they did. And so you said this was, uh, you've, so the book was based on the real life accounts yes. of what happened. Yes. Yeah. The, the real, okay. the real escape happened in 1944. One of the people who were helping out, with the, you know, one of the POWs that was helping out was named Paul Brickhill, and he wrote a book about it. Okay. He wrote, the book came out in 1950, and it, it took, I think, 12 years for for Sturgis to finally get approval to make this movie. He wanted to make it from the beginning, wow. and he was basically told by everyone, how do you expect to make a movie about a prison break where everyone gets caught? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And he, well, once he got there, enough uh, Hollywood for, credit, after the Magnificent yeah. Seven, he was able to finally make this movie. And and we are all grateful for that. <laughs> yeah. Are there, well, there were, are there a couple that made it? Like, I think that the... Uh, no, there's three that made it. There's three that made it. Yeah. But, I think... With but three Charles out of 76. Is not a, not a good ratio, no. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I remember that. That was, like, one thing I remember the first time I saw this movie, I was like... Things aren't really working out for this crew. I thought this was like, it's called The Great Escape, but oh no, like this is not. And it broke my heart when that guy uh, is like, oh, you're, you're, you know, your your German's very good. And he's like, oh, thank you. You know, I was like, I was like, <laughs> no, oh God, oh no. Like, because I would fall for that. I would just totally fall for that. Well, apparently so did Max. I wouldn't be able to, <laughs> so did Max, so. Yeah. Yeah. No, what's really interesting is if you look at this minute, oh, let, let, let's just go back to the minute a little bit. Um, so when, sure, sure, when sure. Garner is pulling out the the wood from from uh, behind the bookcase, I love how he takes out yeah. one one piece and then he takes out like three pieces that are stuck together right after that. And then he, he like you, you see that he, he pulls out some sort of tool that they're apparently using to, 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 uh, to pull it out. You know, he like put it on the side. Yeah. It looks like a hook or something like that, which he just pulls out there. You know, the, the detail of this movie is just unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, a little a little crowbar uh, yeah. hook or something like exactly. that. Exactly. Like, like, they were able to get everything. <laughs> How did they well, get a the crowbar? That when, <laughs> when they were telling him, like, this is what we're going to need, I was like, uh, what? <laughs> you know, we need a pickaxe uh, or two. You know, we need this, this, and this. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. I mean, there's, there's, you can be a scrounger, sure, but that's, that's asking for a miracle, <laughs> you know, and, uh, but then he does it, but that's why these people are so important, just because they can, 
ingratiate themselves with the guards or improvise something or steal like a part of a jeep or something and exactly yeah so really really good one thing i noticed with the with the choir though is that this isn't a great choir doesn't there's have to be. Not a lot of, not a lot of, <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't have to be. There's not a lot of harmonizing going on. So I don't know if it's kind of like it's a sham choir. And it's. Uh, I think if they maybe got some better singing going on, it would have been a bit more of a believable illusion. But I also wonder, like, would this work? Because it's like this in Shawshank when Tim Robbins is waiting for the thunder to cover up the sound of him striking the pipe yeah. with the rock. And uh, earlier on when uh, Bronson starts with the pickaxe on the on the concrete and there's somebody outside banging on a on a tent pole with the hammer kind of thing in time with him to cover up the sound exactly. I I don't know if that would work especially with sharp sounds like that so I think with the creaking of the timbers it might work but I don't know but again these this is like yeah, I don't know either this is like 15 guys singing really loud so maybe uh maybe it would work well, no, but I guess they're they're taking into into account that you know the Germans uh, might not know English very well, or they they might not care about whether they're harmonizing properly or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who knows? I mean, they they give us another shot of the caroling here, which which you know continues with with the, the, the there's there's a joke coming that we're going to talk about at the beginning of next week. You know, where Cavendish is continuing to you know to conduct everyone, and then we get to see them again, and Frick comes by again. You know, he he always shows up uh, looking at. People doing caroling, yeah, uh, for some reason, <laughs> and he just gives him a, a strange look as he's walking by. Yeah, you know, like uh, like the the look makes it seem as if he's really saying, "Are you serious?" <laughs> yeah, just, this is this is the summer. <laughs> Why are you continuing? Slight eyebrow, slight eyebrow raise. Yeah, exactly. And then we get to see them continue with with taking the the, the pieces of wood. And then we get to hear all the creaking upstairs where they're actually taking out rafters also. Again, you'd think that the that the Germans were a little smarter. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and they're taking out one in four. They, they talk about taking out one in four of the rafters. You know, rafters are there to keep the building from collapsing. <laughs> yeah, it was a load-bearing cane, you know. Exactly. Like, yeah, and, sure. and they actually take... Don't take out the load-bearing. You need to have an architect. They take the time of showing us that, that they're, they're passing down... You know, six six uh, rafters. <laughs> you know, that that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, and some of them are some of them are real thick. Exactly. Right. We we get to see Hiltz, where you know he's finally taking part in something with the, you know, as you mentioned, it took so long for him to be put into the into play, and this is what they give him to do. You know, he's they show him, uh, you know, taking a lot of the uh, bedboards. The slats from under the beds. I like how they, yeah, and I like how they uh, how they got him to be a part of it. Yes, they let him. They just let him refuse, and he's exactly. like, "Well, well, I can't do it." And they're like, "No worries, sorry, we asked." He's like, "You know, I, I mean, I can't though. I mean, I'm not going to." And they're like, "Nope, absolutely, you shouldn't." He's like, "Okay, I'll do it." <laughs> you know, like he's, you know, I like I like that. They don't give him the hard sell. They they say, "Okay, we'll just we'll do it without you then." And he's that's what kind of makes him go. Well, what are you doing in there exactly? You know. Strings along, and then the poor, poor, the poor Scottish guy, poor Angus. He gets, uh, he goes, he goes bonkers. Yeah, no, don't, don't, don't give it no, away. Okay, don't I'm give it away. away. I won't give it away. <laughs> As I'm sure, I'm sure most people have seen it. I'm sure most people. Yeah, we're not giving away. But that what much. I liked about the the Scottish guy is that I think he is Scottish. I think that actor is Scottish because yes, Angus, Angus Lenny really is. Because I could yes. hear that. I could hear that in his accent. I took it was. 
I spent the whole movie wondering where James Coburn was pretending to be from, right? Until somebody mentions like, oh, he should go snuggle a kangaroo or something at the end. I'm like, oh, is it Australian? Was he trying to be Australian? Like, <laughs> yes. um, like, I don't mind a dodgy accent, but I didn't even know what he was trying to do. So I'm, I, I, I feel like he didn't either. I got a lot of love for James Coburn. I, uh, I love it. And one thing I noticed is this movie's got kind of a, a Venn diagram between this and the, or a lot of cast overlap between the Magnificent Seven and this one, because Coburn, Bronson, and McQueen were all in um, the Magnificent Seven as well. Yeah, well, Sturgis knew that knew that, knew that these are guys he can count on. Oh, Sturgis did Magnificent Seven as well, right? Yes. Oh, yes. well, there you go. That's where they overlap. Of course, <laughs> of course, of course, they would rehire. Oh, the other thing is the music. Uh, yes. Elmore Bernstein did the soundtrack to Ghostbusters. Yes. As well. And I could hear a lot of that in that, uh, the strings, not so much in the main theme, but in the strings of, uh, whenever there was some, some tension going on or some time passing, there was some, some chord changes on, on the strings. And it was very much, very reminiscent of a lot of scenes in, uh, in Ghostbusters. And I was like, is this, oh yeah, it's Elmore Bernstein. So. Yeah. It's got a recognizable style. And also, this movie has one of the catchiest theme songs in the history of catchy theme songs. Which apparently Elmer Bernstein thought of this when he was 14. And it was something that, that, that he was waiting to use at some point in his life. And, you know, it worked out really well here. It's a, it's a perfect march. Wonderful. Yeah, really fits Oh, in. that's fantastic. That's wonderful to know. That's great. Yeah. McQueen takes takes a bunch of the slats and puts them on the pile. Did, did, did you take the time to try and count the slats on the, in the pile? <laughs> I did not, but just a glance right now. One, two, three. Because I did. I, I Looks did. like it's... Okay. I, I, my guess would be like uh, 56, but that's... Okay. That guess is... It's... It, 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 it's not right, unfortunately, because there are 24 rows and he it's three deep. So... It, it's it's at least 72, and based on what I counted, okay. I got to 75. But again, it could be wrong because, you know, you can't see all three layers properly. Yeah. I, I love the way that, that, that he just, like, tries to figure out if he's taken enough. You know, he's just taking, taking flats, you know. I don't know. I wouldn't want to sleep on any of those beds without these flats. <laughs> nope. Nope. I exactly. imagine you've got to be pretty careful getting in and out of bed after this. Uh, That's true. This. Right. So do you have anything else you want to say about this minute, Duncan? Oh, just love for the cast. Like, I didn't realize that was a young Richard Attenborough until the credits. Oh, wow. Really? And I was like, oh, my God, that's that's Richard Attenborough. Because I, I like I didn't because I, I know him so well from later in his career, from Jurassic Park and uh, the the nature documentaries and, and all that kind of stuff and his great narration. And I totally didn't click that it was a young Richard Attenborough in this in this movie. Wow. And um also, a lot of love for Donald Pleasance. Whenever he shows up in a film, no matter how good or bad the movie is, I'm like, oh, boy, it's Donald Pleasance. And uh, because he's so good at playing a, a creepy person, I love it when he gets cast as a good person. Yes. You know, like Edward G. Robinson or or someone like that that, like, is great at being a bad guy, but, uh, you know, fights for and is given the opportunity to play good guys on occasion. Because I know that there are people out there like David Warner and uh, stuff that are just like, will you stop casting me as a villain? You know, <laughs> okay, yes, I'm good at it. I get it. But, you know, I have so much more to offer than that. People are like, yeah, uh, but we don't care. 
here's another villain role, you know, and they, it can get really frustrating. And that's like in Double Indemnity, Edward G. Robinson took the role, uh, even though he wasn't top billing, just because it wasn't another gangster role. Like it was like, please let me play something else. So I like it when when uh, when like Donald Pleasant shows up here as a a guy who's tragically, you know, I mean, his his character in this film is so wonderful, but um, I like it that he's not playing a bad guy for once. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's it. That's pretty. That's pretty much it. Just lots of. Lots of love for the cast. Oh, and I just, I also, I just also wanted to say, like, it was great to, I, I, I don't, I've never really been in love with war movies as a genre. So it's a pretty big hole in my cinematic expertise. Like, I've seen, like, all the movies. I've seen lots and lots and lots of movies. I love movies. Uh, but when people are like, have you seen this classic war movie? I'm like, no, like Kelly's Heroes, right? Oh, like, that's a great movie. Too. I, had, I had no idea what that was. But it's like we were talking before. Uh, I went to Scotland and people were like, hey, Oddball. I'm like, why is everybody calling me Oddball? You know, and then they're like, Kelly's Heroes. I'm like, is that a movie or something? And they're like, what? <laughs> you know, so uh, like some big things like that can sneak past me. And so this is a wonderful excuse to see this movie again, this classic of, uh, of cinema. So thank you. All right. You're welcome. Uh, so you want to tell people how they can get in touch with you? They can just go to Tronologically Speaking, and uh, you, there you can see my movie-by-minute edition of 1982's Tron, and also an episode-by-episode -episode, uh, podcast of Tron Uprising, the animated show Tron Uprising, and we called it Animatronic that I do with Courtney Coulson. Um, both a lot of fun if you like that movie. And just a uh, shout-out to the movies-by-minute community in general. It's just a wonderful place. Yes, it really is. All right, and you can get in touch with us by going to our Facebook group, The Cooler. Our website is thegreatescapeminute.com. Our Twitter account is greatescapemxm. And our email account is thegreatminute at gmail.com. So until Monday, tally-ho. Tally-ho.